Roger. <clears throat> encourage you to keep your Bibles open this morning as we look together at this wonderful, mysterious chapter of Scripture. I want to start with a question. What do you do when someone catches you with what looks like uh, an inconsistency or a fatal flaw in your faith? Someone uh, encounters you with one of those gotcha moments. How could you possibly believe the truth of, uh, of Christianity or Scripture? Maybe a friend points out what looks like a pretty significant contradiction in the Bible. How can you trust this book? Or a teacher or professor just kind of glibly dismisses the whole of Christianity because religion is the cause of all sorts of wars and hatred throughout history. Or a role model, someone you looked up to and sought to kind of pattern your life and faith after all of a sudden announces that they can no longer agree with the sexual ethic of Scripture. It's, it's too oppressive and harmful, and so they're leaving Christianity and you should come too. That can be a jarring experience. You know, to be presented with startling claims that seem to undercut the foundation of our faith. That can shake you to the core. But we need not fear hard questions. We need not be afraid of wrestling with hard questions about the Christian faith. The Bible has nothing to hide, friends. Nothing to hide. Jesus did not accomplish his saving work in a corner, you know, in secret. But before a watching world, he, he did everything publicly. And if our faith can't stand up to public scrutiny, it can't stand at all. And that's something that makes Christianity quite unique, I think, among major religions. It's, you know, every other major religion was founded on some sort of secret revelation given to a select few. And so, therefore, you can't scrutinize it. You can't challenge it. Everything in Christianity can be scrutinized and has been relentlessly scrutinized for the last 2,000 years. And, and what I have found personally when I've encountered those hard questions, the questions that sometimes might, you know, maybe give us an excuse to let go of Christ, what I've found in my own personal experience with that is if you're willing to put in the time and energy to dig deeper to wrestle, to do the hard work of study and prayer and research and learning, then those so-called fatal flaws become pretty superficial. And more often than not, our inquiry into them, analyzing them, studying them, actually opens up the faith to us in a more convincing and profound way. It's even more deep and beautiful and better than we thought. And that's something that the author of Hebrews has been trying to help his readers understand and see for the last couple of chapters uh, in this book, when he keeps hinting at this guy named Melchizedek. He's mentioned him three times already, uh, back in chapter 5, verses 6 and 10, and, and chapter 6, verse 20. But, but he hesitated to elaborate on him at first, uh, because he felt like he needed to address the spiritual laziness of his readers before he could really go there, before he could dig deep with them. 
But now in chapter 7, he goes there. He, he goes into this uh, important topic. And the reason is at least in part to address what, what those who were troubling this ancient church no doubt considered to be a fatal flaw to the Christian message. Their implied challenge was that according to the law of Moses, it is impossible for Jesus to be both priest and king at the same time. That was their challenge. I mean, throughout this book, we have been kind of following the different ways that this church has been pressured to to let go of Christ, to go back to the old covenant, to go back to Judaism and the law, and, and uh, basically as if to say that Jesus has not come or is not the Messiah. And right here is perhaps their opponent's strongest argument yet. That, you know, you say this Jesus is both king and priest, but according to the law, we know that the king has to come from the tribe of Judah. That's what Genesis 49 tells us. But the priest has to come from the line of Levi. That's what Leviticus 8 tells us. And your Jesus is from Judah, but he ain't from Levi, which means your gospel is busted. He's not a Messiah, and you just need to come back home to Judaism where the water is fine. That's, that's their argument. But this is why the author wants his readers to be able to to go deeper in theology in order to hold on longer to Christ. That, that might sound like a compelling argument on the surface. In fact, according to the law, it's true. But when you dig deeper in Scripture, when you look back far enough, you discover that there is a priesthood rooted in something far more ancient and abiding than the law of Moses. This, this chapter, chapter 7, the whole thing reminds me of the climax of C.S. Lewis's classic book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, if uh, you're familiar with that story, you'll remember the White Witch is the villain. She's enslaved all of Narnia under her spell. It's always winter, but never Christmas, right? And Aslan, the lion, is the hero, and he has returned to Narnia to break the witch's spell, But just as it looks like Aslan is winning, the witch plays her most valuable card. She exposes the flaw in Aslan's plan, the fact that there has been a traitor among him. Edmund, one of the four children who had come into this magical world through the wardrobe. And according to the law of the land, what they called the deep magic, every traitor belongs to her as her rightful prey. For, she says, for every treachery, I have a right to a kill. Unless I have blood, as the law says, all Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. And again, if you know the story, you know that Aslan brokers the secret deal with the witch and uh, offers his life instead of Edmund's as a willing substitute. And, and even there, the witch thinks she has her victory. She kills Aslan and then pledges to do the same to the boy since Aslan's no longer around to protect him. Fatal flaw. All is lost. Until all of a sudden the stone table cracks. And there Aslan stands alive, bigger than even before. 
And as the children with them are marveling over what in the world's happening here, he explains them, explains to them that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start to work backwards. So those troubling the Hebrew Christians, they are appealing to the deep magic from the dawn of time, if you will. They're appealing to the law of Moses. And on the basis of that law, they are absolutely correct. It is impossible for someone like Jesus to be a priest and a king at the same time. If you're going to be a priest, you've got to be descended from Levi, and more specifically, from Moses' brother Aaron. But there is a deeper magic from before the dawn of time, if you will, a priesthood that's rooted in something far more ancient and abiding than the Levitical priesthood. One that's not based on the law, based on you know, genealogical code or family descent, and nor is it stunted by sin or cut short by death. But a priesthood anchored in the ancient order of Melchizedek, a man of God who was both king and priest at the same time. And because Jesus' priesthood comes from this order, this more ancient and abiding order, he alone is qualified to complete God's, of, God's work of salvation in us. Now, that's a really long wind-up. But my hope is that it will allow us to connect with the pitch, with the, the argument, what the author is trying to convince us of in these verses, the superiority of Christ's priesthood. And he makes his case in two parts. In verses 1 to 10, he rehearses the greatness of Melchizedek. He takes us back into that story in the Old Testament to show us the pattern of Christ's priesthood. And then in 11 to 28, he shows us how that pattern is perfected in Christ. How that Jesus is not just our king, he is also uniquely qualified to be our priest, our perfect priest. And we'll start with the pattern in verses 1 to 10. Now, uh, if your Bible has cross-references, you will probably see a little notation next to the word Melchizedek. And you, you follow that over to the margin. It tells you to go back to Genesis 14 if you want to find out who this is and what's going on with him. Because that's where we meet Melchizedek, back in Genesis 14. It's a, a story known as the slaughter of the kings. It's when these kings of five nations go up against kings of uh, four nations, and they have this big old battle. And in the process, they capture Abraham's nephew Lot and his family and the people of Sodom, which is where Lot was living at the time before the Lord turned it to toast. And, and so Abraham and his, and his men, they, they come and they rescue Lot and the people of Sodom. And after all of that happens, we read this in Genesis 14, verses 18 to 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek shows up in the story out of nowhere, blesses Abraham, receives a tithe from him. A tithe is, is a tenth of his possessions. And then just like that, he's gone. We don't meet him again in the Old Testament until you get to Psalm 110, which is a promise of another priest arising in his likeness. So who in the world is Melchizedek? Uh, what, why is he so great? And what does that have to do with Jesus and our salvation in Jesus? Like, what's going on with this old guy? Well, back to Hebrews 7. Middle of verse 2, he starts with the significance of his name. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also he's king of Salem, that is king of peace. And so this Melchizedek is a king. He's royalty. He's a king both by his name and his office. The king of Salem, which most people understand to be an early reference to Jerusalem. But he is also, at the very same time, a priest. The priest of God most high. Which is a reference to the one true God who possesses heaven and the earth. And, and so... He's this king who's also a priest, and his priesthood is not based on family descent, nor does it need to be passed on, because it endures forever. Verse 3, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, scholars will debate whether verse 3 is telling us that Christ or, or that Melchizedek is like a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, or if he's more just kind of taking the metaphor of the story. We, he doesn't get the genealogical introduction that the other characters do, and, and, and this is more of a pattern of the office Christ will fulfill. I'm not sure. I don't even know how one would answer that question at the end of the day. If I had to guess, I'd probably lean more toward the former than the latter, but, but whatever the case, there's something unique and mysterious about Melchizedek. Uh, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, and I know there's at least a few of you uh, here, uh, he's kind of like the Tom Bombadil of the Old Testament, right? He, he just shows up out of nowhere, uh, he does his thing, and then he's gone, and you don't hear about him again. There's something yet strange but ancient and great about this guy. There is a deeper magic, to use Lewis's term, than, that predates the law. And in verses 4 to 10, he tells us a little bit, uh, he elaborates on this greatness. What, it, what is so amazing, uh, uh, this greatness of Melchizedek, specifically in comparison to the Levitical priests, those who served as a priest of God according to the law of Moses. And he wants to show us that Melchizedek is better. He's superior than them. So first in verses 5 to 7, uh, he makes this comparison in, in the fact that both of them received tithes, right? The priests uh, under the law received a tithe from Israel, Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek, but Melchizedek has a superior basis for receiving his tithe. 
The Levites got tithes from their brothers, fellow descendants of Abraham, not because they were above their brothers, but because the law commanded them to give that tithe. Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe, not because he was commanded to, but because he is, Melchizedek was above Abraham and he was actually worthy of it. So there's this difference of degree of greatness there. And then second verse 8, Melchizedek's superiority uh, shows up in his enduring life. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, people who die. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Again, Melchizedek seems to have this immortal quality here. And then third, verses 9 to 10, he makes a, uh, you might say, a rather creative uh, but profound point that Melchizedek's, uh, about Melchizedek's superiority over Levi in the fact that Abraham, who's Levi's ancestor, gives a tithe to Melchizedek, which means that Levi, uh, who rightfully receives tithes under the law, actually gave tithes to the better priest because he was still in the loins of Abraham uh, when, when Abraham met Melchizedek. And that too is just this other argument of why Melchizedek is greater than Levi in the Levitical priesthood. But all of these arguments, it's not just about winning an argument, which priesthood is better, right? Uh, Or nerding out over the minutia of scripture. That's not the point of this chapter either. Nor is it kind of a, you know, my dad can beat up your dad kind of thing, right? Our priest is better than yours, Understanding and acknowledging the true and greater priest is a matter of infinite importance and eternal salvation. We need to recognize that. Think about a priest's job. What was the priest to do? That priest was to allow a a sinful people to have relationship with a holy God to close the gap that sin creates between a holy God and a sinful people. You better get that right. Right? If that's the priest's job, you want a priest who's actually the right office and the right way of pulling that off. That's what the the Levitical priests were set apart to do, uh, to, to atone for sin, to cleanse the people, to intercede for them, to advocate for them, to close that gap that sin creates between God and people. And if you depend on the wrong priest, it's not just about losing an argument. It's about missing out on God and salvation. So what might feel like kind of a nerd fest, you know, why in the world do we need to learn about uh, Melchizedek this morning? It's actually life and death. It's life and death because if we don't hold fast to the right priest, the one who's actually qualified and capable of bringing us all the way home, we miss out on God. And and that's true not just for this early church that was being pressured to go back to Judaism. That's true for us today in whatever pressures we might face to turn aside to other priestly type figures in our world. You know, whether we're talking about religious priests who claim to have some exclusive access to God, if you will just, you have to go through them and go through their rituals if you want to get to the God who's in heaven. 
Certain Christian traditions even treat clergy that way. Or pop culture priests. You know, icons and influencers who, who uh, offer a generic spirituality and a self-driven moralism that you can tailor to your own personal tastes. The choose-your-own-adventure spirituality. Or prosperity gospel hucksters, right? Prosperity gospel priests, those who, who offer all of the promises of heaven's riches right here and right now on earth if you just make your donation, plant your seed, and watch God open the floodgates of heaven. I mean, it is so easy to look everywhere else for some sort of advocate, some sort of mediator, other than to heaven where Jesus sits at the right hand of God right now as our great and final high priest. But that's who he is. And that's where he sits, this perfection of the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, the only one qualified to complete God's work of salvation in us. And that's what the author wants us to see and focuses on in verses 11 to 28 as he turns from the pattern to the perfection, to Christ, our better priest. And in these verses, 11 to 28, he's going to take us back to the Old Testament again, uh, this time to Psalm 110 which is the only other place in the Old Testament where this guy Melchizedek is mentioned. And it's a psalm he's already quoted several times in the book of Hebrews, uh, both to refer to Jesus' royalty, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, so that his kingly identity, but also to his priestly identity. And this psalm is what ties Jesus to that deeper magic from before the dawn of time to that ancient order of priesthood, a priest from a different order than Aaron or Levi. As he says, Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the very law, the very law that the persecutors thought they could use to trap the church and debunk their gospel has actually now given way to a new and more perfect kind of priest. Think about that. The, their whole argument was based on this law, and now that law is actually opening up and giving way to something new that God is doing. And guess what? That's always been the design. The Levitical priesthood, the law of Moses, it was always meant to point to something better. This is what he says in verse 11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Why? You wouldn't need Psalm 110 if you could get the perfect priest from the law of Moses. It would be unnecessary. Moreover, verse 12 tells us that this imperfect law is actually subject to change when the perfection shows up. The law cannot contain what God is doing through Christ. It is the old wineskin that must give way to the new kingdom that Jesus is establishing. It doesn't have a category for a king of Judah who's also a priest. That doesn't work according to the law. Verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken, Jesus, belonged to another tribe 
from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses had nothing to say about priests. Jesus breaks the categories of the law, which doesn't mean that the gospel's therefore wrong. It means you're not looking far enough back. You're not digging deep enough to see what God is really doing in his grand plan of salvation. And when you dig deeper, when you look far enough back, you see the superiority of Christ, who's risen as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. What looked like a fatal flaw in the Christian faith has actually opened our eyes to the incomparable significance and power of a priest who can never disappoint. It looked like we were losing all of a sudden Christianity's even better than we thought because we have a priest who's better than we ever imagined. When you look far enough back, you see a priest who introduces a better hope, a better hope, better than anything that, that the law could provide because his priesthood is not based on the weak and useless law, as the author puts it, it's not based on legal requirements about family descent, but rather, as verse 16 says, it's based on the power of an indestructible life. That's the basis and foundation of Jesus, his ability to serve as priest. Well, that's a lot better foundation than that old legal code that can't actually deliver what it promises. Jesus is able to accomplish something that the law would never allow. He's able to bring about the perfection of the priesthood, which means he's able to finish the job of the priest. He's able to complete what he started. He gives us a hope, a better hope, through which we are able to draw near to God. When you look far enough back, you see in the priesthood of Christ a deeper certainty of God's promises and the guarantee of a better covenant. Verses 20 to 22. Notice how his priesthood is sealed with an oath. You know, Pastor Keith talked about that last week, how, you know, if you want to convince somebody of the trustworthiness of your words, one way to do that, especially in the ancient world, was to swear an oath. It's like a guarantee. Well, God does that with the priesthood of Christ. He swears an oath. He seals it with an oath. That's not something he did for the priest's of Levi. Jesus' priestly office is more secure, it's more trustworthy, such that we can then have even greater confidence that he will do what he says he will do. Verse 21, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, and that promise makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant a deeper certainty of God's promises. And when you look far enough back, you see the superiority of Christ's priesthood as the only one able to complete our salvation. That's verses 23 to 28. And this, honestly, this is where the author has been driving through the whole chapter. And sometimes when I read, when I read Hebrews, I'm increasingly convinced that the author must have been a lawyer 
Like, it's just such careful, detailed reasoning and explanation, right? And here's what he's been driving to. To convince us, to persuade us, encourage us to hope in Christ alone for the completion of our salvation because there's no other priest who can pull it off. There's no other priest who can finish the job and bring us all the way home. When you compare the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek, when you compare that to the Levitical priests, you see that, that the, little, the Levitical priests, were, they were simply unable to finish the job. They, they were unable to finish the job. First, they too were sinners. That was kind of a problem. So when they offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people, they had to first offer one for their own sins so that then they could offer one for others. Second, the sacrifices that they offered were ultimately insufficient to deal with sin. Uh, we're going to see this more clearly when we get to chapters 9 and 10, but chapter 10 verse 4 tells us it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the, their sacrifices were insufficient. And then third, because of their sin, the priests were also subject to death. They weren't around long enough to finish the job. Chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They weren't around long enough to finish the job. Now, compare all of that to Jesus. Think about the difference. Those former priests that were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, forever. He is our risen king, our eternal priest, who, whose office is not subject to death, but because it's been secured by the power of his indestructible life. He always lives for us. He, he's not cut off by death from finishing his job. Second, unlike Israel's priests, Jesus never sinned. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He's unlike them in his perfection. And then third, unlike Israel's priests, his sacrifice is actually sufficient to cover the sins of the people, and not just some people, all people for all time. Verse 27, he has no need like those priests, like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up his own life. Understand that. Jesus gets to sit down from his job because he finished it on the cross, right? His work is done, and there is nothing we need to add to it in order to make up for our sin, in order to gain God's approval. Jesus has finished it. His blood is enough. And he's the only one, therefore, qualified to actually Close that gap between a sinful people and a holy God. 
For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. Jesus is our perfect priest. And because of that, because he's perfect, holy, sinless, because he alone has conquered death and lives forever, Jesus alone is qualified to complete God's work of salvation in us. And, and that's the hope we see in verse 25. If there, was, if there was a main verse in chapter 7, if there was a verse I was going to memorize from this chapter, it'd be verse 25. This is the, the summary, the highlight, the climax. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to finish the job. He doesn't just get us started on the right path. He doesn't just wipe the slate clean or reset the scales, and now it's up to you not to mess it up from here on. He is the one who does everything necessary, both to deal with our sin, to cleanse our conscience, to make us acceptable for God, and to actually be at work in us to carry us every single step of the way home. His blood is that powerful. His life is that eternal. He always lives to make intercession for us. He will never abandon us on that journey. That's what intercession is. He's pleading for us, praying for us before his Father, so that we make it home. I mean, that's what he did in his life. He interceded for his people. You think of John 17, his prayer there. He prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. He's pleading for us. It's what he did from the cross. Remember his prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's what he's doing right now. In this very moment, in heaven, at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. We're talking about Jesus down here. He's talking about us up there applying his blood to our account. That's amazing, right? I mean, listen to, listen to Romans 8.34. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. And we sang that earlier, right? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. How much more secure can your salvation get than the Son of God pleading your case by his blood in the very presence of his Father. That's amazing. This, this is how one author describes it. His once completed self-offering is utterly acceptable and effective. His contact with his Father is immediate and unbroken. His priestly ministry on his people's behalf is never-ending. And therefore, the salvation which he secures to them is absolute. Our living Savior is our perfect priest who is able to save us to the uttermost, all the way to complete God's work of salvation 
in us. Which means we need no other priest. And no other priest will do. No pop culture icon or prosperity gospel huckster. And no religious priests either. You know, there's a reason in the New Testament that there's no office of priest in the church. You have deacons who are set apart to serve. You have elders or overseers who are set apart to shepherd or pastor. There's no office of priest in the New Testament church. Now, some church traditions will call their clergy priests or treat them like priests, but that is a mistake. Because that office has been perfectly and permanently filled by Jesus. And he's never going to vacate it, and he doesn't need our help. You don't need a priest to get to a priest. That defeats the purpose of it being a priest. Jesus is the final great high priest who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And as our high priest, he invites us, therefore, to draw near to God. He has closed the gap between a holy God and a sinful people so that we can draw near. That's his invitation. We see it twice in our in our passage here, verses 19 and 25. That's what he invites us to do, to know, to enter the presence of God, to know him and be known by him, to approach him by faith with joy, knowing that Jesus has done everything to secure our access to the Father. And that he will be around long enough to bring us home. That's our hope. And we see that invitation, I mean, it's throughout the book of Hebrews, but it, it just beautifully, uh, it's beautifully reiterated in chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He'll finish it. He'll keep his word. Friends, that is good news. That is absolutely incredible news. That's the priest we have pleading our case in heaven. That is good news for those who seem to have it all together because you still need Jesus. That's good news for, for those of us who are falling apart because Jesus is still enough. It's good news for starting with Christ. It's good news for walking with Christ every single step of the way. And that's good news worth sharing with others, isn't it? Right? This, is, this is the priest we have. This is the access to God we have. Don't we want others to know about that? Right? 
that, that there is a salvation that is able to be completed by our great high priest and king. That's good news worth sharing with others. Easter's coming up. And obviously, it's a wonderful occasion to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. That's what Easter is about. It's, it's Resurrection Sunday. But it also happens to be the one day of the year where if you invite somebody to church, they're more likely than not to actually say yes. It's a really good opportunity. There's an invitation in your, car, in your, in your program. And I'd encourage you to pray who you might use that who you might invite to come meet our priest, to come know his love, to hear the good news of who he is and what he's done for us. That's good news worth sharing. Because Jesus comes from a more ancient and abiding priesthood, he alone is qualified to complete God's work of salvation in us. So let's trust in him alone. Let's hold fast to Christ alone for the completion of our salvation. There is no other priest qualified or capable of bringing us all the way home. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we... What else can we say but thank you for Christ? Lord, we confess we are hopeless without him. And yet in Christ we have a hope that can never perish or fade. Lord, thank you that you have given us a Savior who's able to finish the job. One who is able to save us to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. Lord, we praise you for Christ, and we pray that we would hold fast to Christ in all circumstances, in all situations. Lord, thank you that through him we can draw near to you. We ask it in Jesus' name.